Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In peace, there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger. Neighbours, Godspeed. Welcome to Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters, a podcast where we watch and then talk about a production of every single play written by William Jessica Shakespeare, who needs no introduction. But we do, so I'm Tammy Sarah Lindy. And I'm Luke O'Hagan. This week on Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters, King John, directed by Tim Carroll in 2015, filmed live at the Stratford Festival in Stratford, Ontario, Canada, and written circa 1595 by William Shakespeare. So this is the first show that we're recording after our first episode was released and we're absolutely flabbergasted with uh, how many people who have listened to the show. Um, we came into this with absolutely no expectations, so um, we've been blown away, honestly. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to us jabber about the Bard. Um, so coming into something with no expectations and being blown away is kind of a theme this week. Uh, King John is not exactly the most popular or frequently performed play uh, in Shakespeare's canon. So our last two episodes, we picked adaptations because we either loved an actor in the cast or to take advantage of a major theatre company giving away freebies, which is great. Thank you, National Theatre. But this week we chose a Canadian adaptation because the other options were a silent film from 1899 or a Hindi adaptation from 1936. So clearly uh, the choice was easy and serendipity abounds, but um, although this is an adaptation of a minor work, it's much more than the sum of its parts, as Shakespeare so often is, wouldn't you agree? I would. (laughs) Uh, So now, for the sake of brevity, a synopsis of King John in one tweet. You think that I'm a bad guy and that my nephew should be king? I'll show you what a bad guy is. It's the Pope. The Pope's the bad guy. So, Luke, did you think it was a good play? I I really, really liked it. I think I'm going to like the history plays maybe more than you because I do have kind of like... I, I like history and I, it's true. I like English history and, and things like that. So it's... um. It's definitely designed for me, but this ain't Henry V and this ain't Richard III, right? This isn't one of the big ones. This is the least performed of the Shakespeare histories. Yes. And I have no idea why. I thought this was absolutely fantastic. I this, loved it. Yeah, it was It was wonderful. We, so we're talking specifically about adaptations here on the show. Yes. This adaptation itself was an excellent sort of balance between some modern touches, but really going deep in on it being a period work, but making some stylistic adjustments and definitely stylistic cuts, 
that have really made it feel modern. The best thing I can say about this is that this is a show where people are flopping around in tunics and tights, but it feels like a modern play. Yeah, I agree. I think that was actually one of the things I really enjoyed about this piece was that the theatre itself kind of felt like a nod to the, I think it's the Black Friars Theatre. Mm. Whatever, history, not my not my forte. Um, <laughs> but um, the theatre, the Black Friars Theatre was kind of like this enclosed theatre and it was lit by candles. But yeah. um, the general vibe of the theatre that this production was in kind of had that same feel but it was in a, a u shape so it was almost in the full round just the semi round but the costuming and the set and all of that kind of things f- still felt very shakespearean but the energy and the way that the actors um performed felt very modern it was a very modern energy about it i mean it's interesting to me that you say that because like i said i think it's modern but this felt very shakespearean to me in general all through Shakespeare has a feel, and probably for a lot of reasons, not the least of which this entire work is in verse. There's no sections of prose. Um, It's one of very few Shakespeare plays that have that uh, quality to it. And I think just the way that it was structured as well, it was lots of monologues, um, especially from, you know, my homeboy, Philip the Bastard, <laughs> the best character in the play. But I just felt that it was so... Shakespearean. That probably has a lot to do with um, this Stratford Festival, which is... So Stratford is a, a city in Ontario, Canada. Obviously, they're huh. um, they're very about Shakespeare because uh, Shakespeare mm-hmm. comes from Stratford-upon-Avon. So they have this Shakespearean festival here. I think it's a sister city thing. But they're clearly trying to put on Shakespeare in a very Shakespearean way. You know, this wasn't a cyberpunk adaptation of King John. <laughs> right? No. And it's interesting because, like... They they lean into the history. This is one of Shakespeare's histories. And I think with King John, you have to acknowledge that it exists in historical context. Yeah. Um, because we have a show here about King John, who's, yes, a, a cruel despot and a king that lost a huge portion of his lands. Um, portrayed as a villain throughout Western culture, most notably uh, by a tiger in Disney's Robin Hood. And uh, also by Richard Lewis for Mel Brooks's cinematic masterpiece, Robin Hood Men in Tights, which I will just say, the single greatest Robin Hood adaptation ever made. I'm sorry, I'm I'm an Errol Flynn girl all the way. Well, that's fine, but you're wrong. Um, (laughs) So there's that part of it. There's that cultural part of it. There's also this historical part of it. King, the most important thing about King John's reign from a historical perspective is the Magna Carta. Yeah. Which is a document that he was forced to sign at Crossbow Point, ceding that people other than the king had rights. Yeah. In this case, it was barons and landholders. They had a little bit of time to go before they had any really progressive ideas. But this was a very progressive idea in the day. Now, this play does not mention Magna Carta at all. It's a play about an English king that doesn't mention the most important part of that English king's life. And to understand why that's the case... You have to understand that this was written in Elizabethan England. And to Elizabeth, the idea that someone other than the monarch had rights was deeply anathema. Like, that's not okay. Yeah. And also, this is a deeply anti-Catholic play. Yes. Uh, Very, very deeply anti-Catholic. The church is this sort of uh, looming figure that's over the entire play. and, And the villain of the second half of the play is a cardinal, a representative of the Pope. 
that that's the context we're talking about here. You can't do King John and talk about all the stuff that she's not going to like, right? Yes, I agree with that. Like, I'm, again, you're the history buff, not me, but I am aware through my studies that all of Shakespeare's plays aren't necessarily truthful. They're more like those documentaries that you see on Netflix about O.J. Simpson and stuff. It's It's a version of the truth. I mean... It's propaganda. Well, it is propaganda. This is yeah. proper. This play, this play specifically, all of the histories well, I mean, to an all extent. Of, all of the histories are propaganda to and, an extent. And the you know, let's not talk about uh, political theater because you'll have a stroke again. Uh, <laughs> uh, Tammy did not like a political theater course in university. Folks. Now, now. But um, really, all theater is propaganda. Yeah. But this is really, really propaganda. Yeah. It's clear, direct political propaganda. Yeah. But this adaptation, I'm so glad we found it. And it was a bit of a pain to get a hold of, to be honest. We ended up, you know, it's available in Canada. But I will give everyone a fantastic bit of news that due to the ongoing pandemic, the Stratford Festival is one of the theatre companies that is releasing their stuff onto the web. To, for everyone to see for free in a sort of an ongoing rolling fashion. And King John is being released for everyone to watch. If you're watching this on the day it comes out, and let's face it, you are because you're a huge fan of us. The, um, <laughs> the, and our numbers just dropped. Absolutely. Uh, it comes out tomorrow and it's available until the 2nd of July. And you, we'll have the link in the show notes to go watch it, but you absolutely need to go and watch this because this is a show you're not going to get the chance to see very often, and it's done incredibly well. So let's talk about casting. We don't have any stunt casting in this adaptation. Well, they're all Canadian. They're, they're all Canadian actors. They're all Canadian local actors. Like, I went through, and I, admittedly, I didn't check everyone, but I sort of flicked through the IMDb page for this and, mm. and had a look at all the cast. And most of these people just do Shakespeare. Oh, and wow. A couple of them have done like some TV work on the side, but a lot of them are really just involved in the Stratford Festival. And so that's the thing. They, they're hiring these local Canadian actors and they're so good. Yeah. So the most important character to talk about in this point, you would think would be King John, the title of the show. You'd think so. But we're not going to talk about uh, King John first. <laughs> Tammy, who is your favourite character in the show? Oh my gosh. I loved uh, Philip the Bastard. Philip the Bastard. Oh. We call him Philip the Bastard. He has a number of names throughout the show. It's he's kind of. So many odd. names. In the script, he's just referred to as Bastard. That makes it um, easier. Yeah, that does make it easier. Uh, would that we could be so economic with our use of words in this day and age and just call people Bastard? So he's the bastard son of Richard the Lionheart. Yeah. And so he is the, I guess, nephew of King John. Yes. Yeah, that's how I interpreted what they were talking about. Yeah, yeah the play starts with him coming into King John and they're talking about uh, he wants King John to sort of adjudicate on this. He's having a fight with his brother, which we never see the brother again because he's irrelevant to the story. He is absolutely. He's just a way to introduce <laughs> this character. Philip the Bastard is a Mary Sue. If you don't know what that term means, if you didn't have a, you know, a background of growing up reading Harry Potter fan fiction like I did, a Mary Sue is a character where it's like a generic name for any fictional character who is so competent and perfect that they make everyone else seem absurd. He gets the best lines in the show. He's hilarious. Yes. And Graham Abbey, who plays Philip the Bastard, is just chef's kiss. Just absolutely 
just cool a actor. wonderful actor. So the his his mannerisms in interacting with the audience because that character has long lengthy speeches and whatnot on stage by himself as a lot of bastard characters do in Shakespeare plays Mm. the illegitimate children get these asides with the audience to share their souls but the way that he did this with the audience was just beautiful to watch and I was engaged the whole time and the way that he would just actually make it personal and he would go towards people and and actually have a conversation with an individual in the audience and and all of those things and interact with them and actually bring them into the story which is the point of those long monologues you know it is the point of those characters to bring the audience into the intrigue that is afoot and i thought he did that beautifully and he's got this great arc through this show he kind of at the beginning he's a joker and he didn't believe he was going to be anything and now he's a recognized although illegitimate he's a, he's a recognized member of, of a royal family yep. and he works for the king and he does all these things and he's joking and he's hilarious and he has wonderful insults because he's insulting everyone constantly <laughs> and then towards the end he becomes like a war hero he acquits himself very well in the war and by the end he is the person who people are turning to for what are we going to do now that the now that King John is dead and, and what do we do because he turns into like a, a real close friend and confidant of the king yeah before we move on I, I want you to because we have talked about a particular term that we use for characters like this or actors specifically yes. like this and I feel that you need to explain it because not everyone will get the reference and it does sound a bit weird if you've never heard this word before. Right, so this is a shorthand we use when we go and see shows in real life and when we watch things as well. Yeah. Um, it's called poochieing. Now, those of you who are familiar with The Simpsons may be f- familiar with the character of Poochie who was brought in to fix Itchy and Scratchy when their ratings were dropping. Which, for those of you who aren't familiar with The Simpsons, is a cartoon within the cartoon of The Simpsons featuring Cat Mouse parodying the Tom and Jerry cartoons. With Poochie, they're talking about... A dog. It's the network coming in and saying, we we have this suggestion for this character. And they're saying that Poochie is this hip-hop surfer dog with an attitude. And whenever Poochie's not on screen, all the other characters should be saying... Where's Poochie? And we use this as a shortcut for either when a character or an actor is so great and usually so much better than the characters around them that whenever they're not on stage, you're just waiting for them to get back on stage. It's just like, I want more of this. Give me more of this. And so it's a compliment, just to be clear. We are complimenting when we're saying, where's Poochie? Philip the Bastard is a Poochie, 100%. He's Absolutely. way... He's miles above and you love at times when he's on stage. But there are so many other great characters in this play. This is a play of nothing but great characters. I agree. Obviously, King John, performed by Tom McCamus, really, really great. Has a great energy to him. I really loved his uh, rhythm of delivery. So he does have this slight sort of madness or befuddlement, bewilderment, unorganized manner about himself yes and the way that he delivers his lines is that but then you see these snaps and these glimpses of this hard fierce evil king yeah um and you see snaps of that it's not like he's just playing one note the entire play you see this um almost alzheimer type of gentleman who floats in and out of his kingly persona if you will and i loved that 
he reminds me a lot of um of I've seen a lot of politicians and business leaders who are like this, who have this ability to really focus in on one thing yeah. and just like pour all of their energy into one thing. And as soon as that thing is is dealt with, they completely switch off. It doesn't exist to them and they're somewhere else. Yeah. And he does that sort of switch of focus in the scene incredibly well. Yeah. Like uh, this particular actor just does a really, really, really good job of embodying that. And he, and I think that's what makes him seem really, really regal. In a way, I don't think the, uh, the actor who played King Philip of Spain really accomplished quite as well. Mm. Um, this King John really you get this sense of regality from him and a lot of that has to do with staging and costuming he has excellent excellent cape oh yeah love a cape but he's um, he's also it's also got a lot to do with the way he embodies the energy of the space yeah I'd also just like to briefly give a note to the actor Noah Jaleva who plays Arthur the Duke of Brittany who is the very very young son of Richard the Lionheart. He's the person who the French are trying to put on the throne. Now this looks like like a thirteen year old kid. Like a uh, maybe a little older. No more than fifteen. Yeah. In terms of the actor who's playing this role. And I thought he did a great job. Yeah. And his only professional credit. He's never done anything else. Oh wow. Not in the five years since or not before. This the only thing he's done. And I thought he was really, really great. There's a lot of um scenes that he's involved with, for example, he has a death scene. Yeah. And he just, I thought this actor handled those scenes with a nuance that sort of belies his years. Yeah, I think the um, relationship he's had with his director has probably really helped there as well. Like, I know when I've worked with kids in the past as a director working with a child actor, um, you know, half the job is getting a child who is intuitive and, and insightful um, and can be aware of their surroundings. So, you know, I think Noah has definitely got those advantages. And so I think the director's really brought some uh, some beautiful work out of him. Yeah, I think any child actor probably is exposed in their lives to a lot of the same emotions that Arthur feels. Yeah. Like, all these people expect him to be great. And how does he feel about the pressure of that? And Arthur has a stage mum. Yes. So let's talk about Arthur's mother, Constance. Oh, I love so much. If not for how amazing Philip was, uh, this would be, be the, this would be the runaway uh, character in the show. Yep. And in terms of a character that, as an actor, you want to play, yeah, this is probably it. Yeah, absolutely. I would, I would hands down play this role over just about anything else in Shakespeare's canon that I've seen so far. The actor herself, um, what was her name? Her name is Shauna McKenna. Her performance as a mother who is fierce as a dragon, protecting her son Arthur when they come to sort of, she knows that something's afoot. She knows that they'll try and murder him Mm. and and take away his rightful place of being on the throne. And the strength and ferocity you see in this woman fighting as fierce as a dragon to protect her son. And then the journey through that to then coming out the other side after her son has died and the grief stricken performance that um, Shauna plays is just phenomenal. Um, I I love the monologue itself. I think I'm going to have to add it to my list of, of prepped monologues that I have in my back pocket. Yes. But um, she's, 
her appearance on stage, she's dishevelled and her hair is falling out and she's wandering around like a crazy person. There's a whole metaphor about her hair. Yeah. And they're telling her to put her hair back up and she's saying, no, I won't. No, and that's, and that's it. She's defiant. And all these men around her are accusing her of losing her mind, of going mad, of, of and, and the way that she's behaving is madness personified. And... They're trying to reason with her to to step out of her madness. And she just turns around to these men and she's surrounded by these people talking her down and she just turns around and says, I am not mad. And I thought that was just such a beautiful... It really spoke to me on a really personal level because of this understanding that, you know, when, when we do grieve and when we do go through these sorts of things... We have these emotions and all of these things and people around us look at us and might think that we're losing our minds and it's not. It's just grief and and I just thought that was a really poignant thing. And just tremendously played. Yeah, she was, it was just, because she didn't lose any of her strength. No. Throughout that moment, she didn't lose any strength. She didn't appear weak. She didn't appear, um, like she was distraught and she was... And she was broken and she was grieving and she was angry and she was all of these things. But she didn't lose any of her stature and her position from when we saw her at the beginning of the play when she was fighting, like, the the strength of a warrior. And it's interesting because I think there's a contrast there between her and King John. Because at this point in the play, King John's starting into his decline. He's losing. He loses all the time in the play. He's ill. He's starting to lose his ability to sort of interface with the world. And so as King John loses his power, she gains power, but they're both going through these horrible things. So she, she takes strength from it and he's unable to take strength from it. Yeah. And it's a really touching duality there. Yeah. She is excellent and she's one of the great Shakespearean characters. Yeah. So let's talk about the play in general. What did they get right? I really loved, there's a moment in this play where England and France go to war and the entire battle is represented on stage by this beautiful flag dance. And mm. so they have the the flags of the countries and the colour codes and all those sorts of things. So you know exactly what's going on. But these people sort of run onto stage and wave these absolutely ridiculously oversized flag things on stage or in and around each other and it's this whole choreograph sequence and I loved that because I thought it, what a beautiful way to represent a battle without having to worry about physical stage violence without having to worry about combat training without having to worry about without having to worry about doing the dramatic nature of fighting like it's just representative and it like you know me when I direct things I like to cut things back and strip things back with props and all that kind of stuff as much as possible to let the story shine through. And I really felt that this was a beautiful way of symbolising battle through this very simple but eloquent and impacting sequence. I mean, I'm not a big fan of poorly done stage combat. No. I think poorly done stage combat can often look very fake. Yes. And if you can find an intelligent way to sort of symbolize things, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think your audience is going to accept that. I don't think anyone's walking away from that and just being, oh, well, I wish we had a sword fight on stage. Some people are going to really like the flags, like you did. 
Yeah. And that's fantastic. Yeah. And some people, it's not going to impact, but it's going to be overall a net positive for your show. Yes. And also, there's the rap battles. So there's... <laughs> It's, in my notes here, I have them written down as rap battles. There's two of them. In the first half, a lot of the conflict between England and France over who's going to be king is represented through their interactions with this town, Angiers. Oh, that's right. Yes, and um, King John and King Philip are both given time to speak on why they should be king. Yeah. And it is a rap battle. It's 100%. It's both of them because they're talking in verse. And so... They are delivering these bars. First King Philip and then King John. And they go to the audience and who won that? And it's 100% a rap battle in a in a time well before Hamilton, right? Yeah. yeah. And then there's also a second, it's not quite clear, quite as clearly a rap battle, but um, there's a time after the battle, after this this flag dance, the heralds come out to declare who won. And this is very historically accurate. What happens is the French heralds come out and say, oh, wasn't it obvious that the French won? That was great. And the English heralds come out and say, well, the English won that. Isn't it amazing? And they're both contradicting each other. And it's a wonderful moment for storytelling. Yeah. So what else did you like? There's this joke. The context is that the Austrian prince is there in a lion skin. And then Constance is really angry at him and says to him that he's a coward and cowards don't deserve to wear lion skins and he should hang a calf skin on those recreant limbs. Yes. Uh, so basically she's saying instead of a lion skin, it should be a cow because he's a coward. So the Austrian prince obviously, you know, gets all huffy and offended by this and in what can only be described as the most cliche response, except that it's probably Shakespeare who invented it through this scene. <laughs> He's like, oh, if you were a man, yeah. I'd do something about it because you're a woman. I'm just going to let it go. And instantly, like it's a beat. And then Philip the Bastard comes forward and he's like, I think you should hang a calfskin on your shoulders. Yeah. He's like, I'm a man. What are you going to do about it? And not just once. No, and it just keeps coming back again any time Philip gets the chance to slip this calf joke in, this calfskin joke in, he does. Happens like five or six times, and it is absolutely hilarious, and I laughed every single time. But it, the funny, it's funny because it just it's this running gag that we all love and appreciate and we see in cartoons and popular cultural media now. It's and a meme. It's, it's a meme. That's exactly yeah, what it is. Exactly, yeah. And... Here it is in this Shakespeare play, and it's beautiful. And uh, so obviously, Philip the Bastard does not like this guy. No. And uh, Philip the Bastard ends up killing him, ends up killing the Duke of Austria. Yes. And um, the way they do this is that they're sort of fighting on stage, and then they both go off stage, and then Philip comes back on stage carrying the lion's skin and the prince's head. <laughs> yeah. And walks onto the stage, delivers this monologue talking to the head, and then puts it in the lap of an audience member yeah. and walks away. It's, yeah, just an excellent, excellent moment. So another moment that I really liked. At the end of the first half of the play, Arthur is kidnapped by the English and taken back to England. And King John says to Hubert... He's like a valet or something, but a valet with guns. Yeah, yeah. Historically, he's very interesting, but I'm not going to go into that at all. No. Um, <laughs> he tells him to kill... Uh, Arthur. So the King John tells Hubert to kill Arthur. And we get this whole scene 
where Hubert is saying, I'm going to burn your eyes out with hot poker. And Arthur is then pleading with him to try and get him to not do this and say, yeah. you know, I'll put out my tongue instead so I can look upon your beauty. It's a great scene. I really, really like this scene. It's an opportunity for the actor who plays Arthur to really sort of stretch his chops. Yeah. It's an opportunity for the actor who plays Hubert to do some subtle work because at the end he doesn't burn out the child's eyes. Instead, he says, oh, we'll just pretend that I killed you. Yeah. And I thought that it was done really well, simply staged with a chair and a poker. And I really liked that scene. I wasn't as big a fan. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there were times where I felt the character of Arthur was very whiny. The thing that made me frustrated about that, because I'm not saying like you can't have whiny characters. There's a purpose and a reason for doing that. I mean, and he's I think a child who doesn't want to die, right? Right. And so that's that's an important purpose and a reason but which character in this scene are you meant to be rooting for? And this is where I struggled because I was not rooting for Arthur. No. <laughs> I was kind of like, oh, Hubert, just hurry up and poke the kid's eyes out already. Like, well, let's be done with it. It's interesting. I, I think that's kind of on purpose. I think part of what Shakespeare's done in this play is made King John into a, a sort of a tragic, almost sympathetic figure. And in part of doing that, you kind of have to convince us that what he's doing at least has a reason and if you don't like the character of Arthur by the end of the play you know in, in a little sense like writing him as just being a little bit annoying probably helps that transition except that the the issue that I had was the fact that shortly after this scene has taken place yeah. we see Arthur attempting to escape Mm -hmm. and dying in the process. Yeah. And so if you haven't already developed that, like, fondness for Arthur at that point, you feel nothing when he dies. But in saying that, because, like, when he dies, I was much more taken by the coolness of the staging of it. It was an excellently staged. There, It was It was epic. That classic move of uh, he's jumping off a tall thing on stage and he just sort of vanishes and you get someone with the same wig to appear on the ground. Excellent. Yeah. It was stunning. Like the, the theatricality and the staging of it was epic. Um, but at the time I was more taken by the staging than I was by the actual event of him dying. And I, I feel like this is a running theme throughout the shows with, with me and you of well, I think the actual um, perpetration of the death versus the emotional connection. But here's the thing, though, is that I wonder if the reason I connected so strongly with Constance's grief passage was because of the fact I didn't grieve when he actually died, but I grieved a mother's grief. Yeah, you, you've seen that grief. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's an interesting question. I also wonder, in general, when you've seen that, you're, you're viewing it through like a performer's eyes and a director's eyes. Yeah. And the whole point of this podcast is us viewing these things through our own particular biases. Yeah. Right? And I wonder, and I'd be really interested to hear from people who go on after this and watch it in the, in the free upload that uh, the Stratford Festival do, whether or not this play is maybe better for performers than it is for patrons whether or not it's better for actors than it is for the audience yeah maybe. because it's really great for for yeah. actors like you sort of watch it and you're saying oh this is wonderful why isn't this done more and there's got to be a reason it's not done more yeah so that, it's possible that that's the case and it's possible that uh, little things like this arthur thing 
we rationalize because we see it from a performance point of view. Yeah. But it's possible that from an audience's point of view, that isn't really the case. It's not as interesting. Yeah. Uh, another thing that kind of annoyed me. Yeah. Look, I'm just going to say it. Shakespeare in Canadian accents is super weird. Sometimes you make decisions and you do shows without accents and that's yeah. fine, right? There are reasons you do that. Uh, sometimes you don't want to put all your focus onto accent work. No. It's not a problem. I completely understand that. And it wasn't distracting. It, wa- it wasn't really distracting. No. It was re- it was distracting for the first 30 Moments. seconds as I was yeah. like, oh, this is why there's so many Canadians on stage. Because I hadn't really recognized that this was a Canadian play up until that point. No. And so the Canadian accents didn't really throw me. What really threw me is their pronunciation of French words. And I'm not saying, like, I'm not the guy who's saying, you know, we have to call a croissant a croissant, right? Although I am definitely that guy. You are um, definitely that guy. But there's things like the Dauphin, the the heir apparent yeah, of France. The Dauphin. They call him the Dolphin, or they call him the Dauphin. And it's just... It, it was more the emphasis was in the in a, on a different syllable. It was more like... Dauphin. Yeah. And that just bothers Dauphin. me. I'm just saying, these guys are, are Canadian. They have no <laughs> excuse. They know how French words are pronounced. What's your favourite quotes from the play? A couple of King John quotes. Um, yeah. Specifically just for the way it sounds and the way it's said. Why do I rail on this? But for because. It, just that that rhythm, that especially the way that he delivered, but for because. It's like three little words, three non-important words, but he's used them in succession and it means so much more. So, you know, why why do I keep complaining but for because? And I just, I want to use that in my real life and it's great. <laughs> yeah. um, I also really enjoyed another one of his, um, turn this day out of the week. Uh, so basically saying this day is so terrible that we just, Get get rid of it. Just pretend it never existed. Turn it out. Turn it out of the week. Um, I really like that. The third one I really liked was uh, one by Lewis, so the other king. And no. what? The Dauphin. The, the Dauphin. The heir apparent. Oh, the heir apparent. Right. Whatever. Some French guy. Um, yes. <laughs> um, and he said that life is as tedious as a twice told tale vexing the ear of a drowsy man. And I just love the the way that feels in the mouth and the way it hits the ear, um, the the very visceral feeling of it. And it it's just a very, it's a great insult. It's interesting because um, it, it kind of gives you a lot about that character that he's sort of bored with the world and he wants to go and go, go to war. And the, these there are these two characters, the, the, the Dauphin and also Prince Henry, who ends yep. up being Henry III, who are intro- introduced right at the end of the play. And it makes no sense whatsoever, <laughs> but uh, anyway. The, Dauph- the Dauphin is kind of in the second half of the play. Prince Henry, literally in the last act of the play. I think, as written, he's in it a little bit more before that, but with the cuts that they made, they made many cuts, beautifully done. He doesn't need to be there. I mean, I agree with you. I agree with you that it's kind of a uh, not uh, necessary thing to have. It's kind of like... It's kind of like when you watch those TV shows and you've got a two-parter, but you don't know it's a two-parter until right at the end it says, to be continued. Yeah. That's what the introduction of this character is. Well, there is no Henry III. We skip right over the Henry III and go to Henry IV. Shakespeare! <laughs> yeah. So, but, you know, it's because Henry III's story, not that interesting. Um, in terms in terms of quotes, um, I'm not going to list them here because there's a lot of them. Uh, <laughs> so this many. This play... Fantastic for Shakespearean insults. Yeah. There's this great one where they're talking of, he calls someone ass and he's like, but ass, I'll take that burden from your back. And it's, it's great. It's, it's like, it's, it's a, it's a dirty joke. 
I just I suggest that everyone goes and either reads or watches everything that Philip the Bastard says because it's phenomenal. But there's a wonderful quote: "This England never did nor never shall lie at the proud foot of a conqueror," and that's what this play is all about. That's what all the Shakespearean histories are about: is English nationalism, right? Yeah. And it's just really, really well put together line, sort of summarizing the whole play. Not necessarily realistic, not historical, nope. but a great line that accomplishes what this show is politically trying to do. Uh, would you watch it again? I would definitely watch this adaptation again. In fact, I think I might. Yes. Mostly just to laugh at everything again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it, it's that level of wonderful. It's not a big Royal Shakespeare company, Patrick Stewart or Ian McKellen at the height of their powers. It's not that play, right? Doesn't need but to be. It's just a wonderful... Small adaptation of minor work done really, really well by people who care about it. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, the adaptation, I love, I'll watch it again. I want to be in this play. I want to <laughs> preach the gospel of King John. Like, this is the Shakespeare play. Like, we're going to come across some Shakespearean plays that aren't often produced that are bad. There are some of them. Mm-hmm. We're, gonna, we're going to have to watch them because, you know, we signed up for this. Yep. This is not that. This no. is a This is a really good play that's underperformed and should be done more. Yeah. How many spears would you shake at this play? Four. I would shake four and a half. Oh, that's good. That's good. You're uh, really, really reading it up there then. And now, a sonnet that is not Sonnet 18. Sonnet 87. Farewell, thou art too dear for my possessing, and like enough thou know'st thy estimate. The charter of thy worth gives thee releasing, my bonds in thee are all determinate. For how do I hold thee but by thy granting? And for that, riches, where is my deserving? The cause of this fair gift in me is wanting, and so my patent back again is swerving. Thyself thou gavest, thy own worth then not knowing, so thy great gift upon misprision growing comes home again on better judgment making. Thus have I had thee as a dream doth flatter, in sleep a king, but waking no such matter. You've been listening to Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters, You can follow us on the socials using HSAUL podcast, where we will also make our show notes available. Feel free to send us any questions there or send us an email at hsaulpodcast at gmail.com. You can subscribe to Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters on iTunes, Spotify or anywhere good podcasts are available. Next time, we'll be watching the 2010 film adaptation of The Tempest. This podcast is produced in partnership with That's Not Canon Productions, And the music is by me, with editing by both Tammy and myself. Thanks to William Shakespeare, Zane, Daryl, Scott, Janet, Bernadette, David, Emily, Kate, Peter and Jason for your help and mentorship. See you next time. I really like that tweet. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, so Stratford-upon-Avon is in Canada? No, Stratford, yes. William Shakespeare was Canadian. That's why all that's why the the last um thing in in every in every sonnet the last the last beat in every line of every sonnet is a so, you know shall I compare thee to a summer's day eh <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, I realized how dumb that question was the second it came out of my mouth. No.